Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Well, it's nearly midnight here in the UK. It is just the start of the evening in Catherine Whitaker's Miami Wonderland. And uh, she's just uh, finished presenting Prime Video's coverage in the UK, expertly, I should add. Matt and I have just been loving the last couple of days, watching Catherine having conversations about tennis without us, trying not to get offended by it. But, uh, you know, she did a very good job, and now she's here with us, slumming it. With Matt and I here on the Tennis Podcast. Hello, Catherine. Hello, David. What a way to end my time in Miami. I um, I ended my coverage on Prime with a Taylor Swift reference, which was which just I didn't get presented to me by the DJ gods. Did you not? Well, I don't know Taylor Swift references very much, do I? So I, I kind of found out about it afterwards from Matt because he he got it as I was as I was delivering it. I was imagining Matt's face. And I hope it was as I pictured it, Matt. I punched the air. It was it was a, it was a fantastic finish. <laughs> and I also noticed perhaps an unintentional one from Martina Navratilova earlier in the coverage. I felt like she'd definitely been been spending time around you, Catherine, because she she dropped in uh, that playing Daniil Medvedev is like death by a thousand cuts. I oh goodness me, I had to hold my tongue when she said that. <laughs> I thought, no, Martina's not. I want to take this in a direction that Martina is not going to enjoy. <laughs> Stay professional. Uh, but yeah, we were talking about Yannick Sinner and how he moves on from today's defeat and the manner of it. And the DJ started playing Shake It Off. It was presented oh. to me on a silver platter, David. Oh, and I'm disappointed. <laughs> I logged it up I and Tim and put it away for a smash. Ah. <laughs> oh. I can't believe I messed that up then because mm. I do know that one. Oh, anyway, it, it works, and I'm sure there were plenty of others punching the air with Matt uh, because there seemed to be a lot of uh, Swifties. Is that what they're called? Mm. Mm. A, lo- a lot of other people going, "Will she shut up about Taylor Swift now?" <laughs> okay, uh, but we'll ignore those people. <laughs> Yeah, we'll ignore those people. Fine. Uh, well, anyway, we've got loads of tennis to talk about. Catherine's already uh, 
alluded to the uh, the result. You probably know about it anyway, because you know you're a tennis podcast listener. You, therefore, you watch and find out about tennis. And Yannick Sinner has been beaten by Daniel Medvedev. We'll get on to all that in a little while. Um, should remind you as well that we are sponsored by On Location, the premium hospitality and experience provider who sent us to Indian Wells. We're still reveling in the afterglow of all that. Uh, Catherine then went on her road trip through Vegas. Uh, I mean, one day you'll you'll sort of tell people about this, Catherine, and it won't seem real, will it? It already doesn't seem real. (laughs) By the way, that's not afterglow, that's actually sweat. Um, Oh, The Miami climate, I would... I would describe as uninhabitable, and yet <laughs> there are millions of people inhabiting it but extraordinarily. Another Taylor Swift reference. Just knocking them out of the park. Which one, which one is this that I've inadvertently done? Afterglow. Just, oh, is it? just all over it, David. I was going to leave oh. that one, Max. I thought people are fed up with this. But Sorry. I'm very or, glad you or, went there. Or you might have <laughs> thought that maybe David had just sort of, you know, cottoned onto all this and is now... Dropping da- David's no. in his lover era, mm. apparently. <laughs> okay. I really will move on. Everyone, Sorry, everyone, David. Everyone's chewed. Start talking about tennis quickly, David. Okay. Uh, yeah, I will say just uh, quickly that uh, on location, send people all over the place uh, on Steve Fergal's international tennis tours. Such places as in New Wales, Miami, Madrid, Labour Cup, all four of the Grand Slam tournaments. And uh, yeah, if you want to go in style, you want to go with On Location. They really do make it special for you. We, we've sampled it now. You can get incredible hotels. You can get fantastic hospitality. They had a suite in, in Indian Wells, and it was just an amazing place to hang out between the matches. They have fantastic seats, which Cassie was telling us all about, uh, having won the, the competition um, for Miami itself. So, yeah, check them out. Uh, the details are in our show notes if you'd like to see what they have to offer. Right then, so let's start with the women's draw. And where did we get up to? This is the, this is the bit that I always find the hardest with these one-and-a-half-stroke, two-week Masters 1000 events, Catherine. Because, And we're going to get more of them, <laughs> so I better get used to them. Because we, we sort of try to do a... Uh, a, a Monday show a week ago and the tournament is already a few days old and then we do the sort of midweek one this one ended up being on Friday and um, you know we, we, we have all that and then I kind of do forget where I'm up to when we get to the final show but one thing I did forget to mention and I will just start with this before we talk about today's final and the semis in the WTA event was we I, d- I think I missed out the injury to Bianca Andrescu the other day um, and we'd been talking about her on last Monday's show with such excitement, hadn't we? Because she'd, she'd got three big wins in. She she really looked like she was starting to build some momentum. And then she she suffered some some sort of ankle turn or injury. It didn't even look like a turn at the time. And crumpled in a heap, it, really distressing scenes. And she she looks like she's out for, for a good while. What? I mean, I think you saw that as it was happening, didn't you? It 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 seemed horrible. Yeah, it was harrowing. Uh, I looked up and I I was watching the match, Andrescu against Alexandrova, um, which was shaping up to be a pretty good match. And then I looked down and looked up again and Andrescu's in a wheelchair. (laughs) And I thought, uh, I I really did a a double take. I I sort of partly in disbelief and partly going, of course, Um, because, look, 
I don't think she's a cursed player. I'm not sure can a Grand Slam champion be a cursed player, but she certainly had some blooming awful luck. Um, and maybe it's not entirely luck. I've no idea. Maybe she does need to do something different in training. Um, I remember there was a, a, a period a while back when Arsenal football team were incredibly injury prone. Um, and for a while, the the discourse around them was, God, what, what awful luck they're having. And then it sort of shifted a bit of, well, actually, let's take a closer look at their physio setup and how much investment they're making in all of that. And there was some quite interesting scrutiny. I genuinely have have no idea on the Andrescu front. Um, but uh, there have been encouraging signs while well, she described it as the worst pain she'd ever felt um, on social media the next day which really made me wince because I'm imagining, given how many injuries she's had, she's felt a fair bit of pain. Um, she said it's it's not quite as bad as it could have been or as first feared. I mean, she's in a boot. I think she's got damage to two ligaments. Um, uh, but she is already back in rehab, you know, obviously rehabbing around the injury because she is in that boot. Um, but I suppose the positive is not quite the worst case scenario but oh it's such a shame she better not turn out to be a cursed player she's not a cursed player i don't i don't know if she's got a sibling but i don't want to suddenly be talking about you know yakapo and andrescu being the better (laughs) andrescu i don't believe in curses for tennis players all right not having Uh, it carolina mukova says hi Okay, um, yeah, that one does stretch my Matteo theory. Berrettini getting COVID the day before Wimbledon says hi. You and your anyway. evidence, honestly, so annoying. Uh, Matt, I'm going to talk to you about something more more positive. Uh, movement killer Petra Kvitova, who, who's gone and beaten Elena Rybakina. What a flattering take, David. <laughs> uh, if you don't know what the movement is, uh, check out Tennis Podcast Terminology. Again, linked in our show notes if you want to read all these weird and wonderful references that we've come up with over the last 11 years. Uh, the movement being uh, one of them, which uh, Petra Kvitova certainly is not part of. She's the, she's the sort of Albert Costa to uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero in this particular Uh, scenario and uh, Elena Rybakin has been beaten a nicer way of putting it Matt would be Petra Kvitova has rolled back the years hasn't she and she's she scored herself a fairy tale victory and won 7-6-6-2 including a 16-14 tie break in the first set you can tell I'm a bit out of hand out of practice with the old presenting can't you because I've gone in on the on the movement killer but a very nice story Matt yeah, a fantastic story, as as Petra Kvitova always is, whenever she has a big result. And it's been a little while now since since she'd won at, at this level. I think Madrid 2018 was the last time she'd won a title as big as this. And yet at the same time, she always has a run somewhere during the year. You know, she might get to a semi-final or a final of a slam or a 1,000 event. So to me, it's... It's surprising and not surprising, you know, kind of at the same time, because we know that she is capable of just playing such brilliant tennis. Uh, It's just she hadn't been finishing tournaments off, I suppose, for a while. So to see her actually do that and and play so incredibly well in the final against 
an opponent in Rebekina who, you know, didn't have her best tennis, I don't think, in Miami. She certainly played better in Indian Wells, but I just felt like she would get through on confidence and form. And she just seemed so uh, locked in, as the sort of phrase of, of the day seems to be. Uh, that I, I felt like she would she would win that match. But similar to the Indian Wells final, actually, I think it all hinged on that first set tiebreak. And Rebecca, of course, ended up winning a very dramatic tiebreak in Indian Wells. And then we saw the drop-off from Sabalenka in the second set. On this occasion, Rebecca was on, was on the other end. She couldn't come through this dramatic nail-biting, topsy-turvy tie-break. And it's just so much to bear to play a set like that and not win it. And I think we did see a little uh, letdown from Rabatkina at the start of the second set, whereas Kvitova was just so intense and determined the entire time and, you know, built a lead in that second set and just kept swinging and just kept finding the winners. And I thought it was was a fantastic performance from her she served so well which you have to do against Rebekina we've seen the way Rebekina has crushed Sviontek's second serve this year but Kvitova just protected her second serve well high percentage of first serves double the number of winners to unforced errors it was it was vintage Kvitova you know the sort of performance that we've seen every now and again for about the last 15 years it was it was a joy and uh I took immense, um, I suppose, solace from the fact that I didn't really see this coming from the fact that she didn't either because she uh, said on on the Prime coverage that, yeah, she she really didn't think that she was going to play well coming into this tournament. She sort of had, had no form, didn't have much confidence, and yet it just all suddenly clicked for her. And it sort of helps me understand Petra Kvitova as a player that she thinks like that as well, because that is entirely what I think about her. I have no idea whenever the form is coming, just that it it might, you know, you can never fully count her out. Uh, But yeah, absolutely fantastic uh, week. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people will be now looking at the grass and whether she can sort of do this again at Wimbledon. Mm, very, very interesting to we'll, we'll have a little chat about her future in a second but just on Rebecca now Catherine it strikes me I I think maybe Kvitova is one of the only people in the world who could have beaten Rebecca in that tie break because she plays like she just doesn't give a monkeys really it doesn't it doesn't just doesn't get stressed really Kvitova does she because she's just accepts it all yeah, I think that's the magic. I think that's the magic ingredient with Kvitova. She's got a lot of other assets. Um, Rabakina did not enjoy that lefty serve yesterday, did she? I mean, it was dreamlike serving from Kvitova pretty much all week, but Rabakina didn't like it. She wasn't dealing with it brilliantly. She didn't seem to do a good enough job of getting Kvitova on the move. I think there was some criticism from our pundits today for a backner of just sort of not using the angles enough being a bit being a bit up and down with her shots which has been enough against almost every opponent but you know I think both the finals that we've had the both the singles finals have been fantastic evidence of how tennis is all about matchups and that fact is, is one of the reasons we love it so much. I don't think Rabatkina loved 
having her fire fought with fire yesterday and I found that very interesting I think the second set was partly about that tie break and not being able to to recover from losing it and also partly about general exhaustion I think in order to recover from losing that tie break she needed to dig dig very deep she needed to go to a dark place and I just I'm not sure that dark place was at her disposal at the end of you know the this first three months of the year in which she's played more tennis than she's ever played before because she's been winning more than she's ever won before there was something quite interesting about you know it being Petra Kvitova who who stopped Rabakina because in a way I do sort of think that Kvitova's career would be a sort of aiming point for Rabatkina. You know, I think there are some definite similarities, you know, a sort of Wimbledon title quite early on in their career. And then if you look at Petra Kvitova's record, I mean, that was her 30th title. She's done, she's done so much winning. She's been obviously famously, I think, one match away from world number one, but as, as high as world number two. She's won nine of these 1,000 events now. You know, she's a multiple Grand Slam champion, She's won several Billie Jean King Cup titles. You know, she is she has had an incredible career. And I think for someone like Rebecca, you know, she might hope to win more slams than Petra Kvitova has done. And and she may well. But if she has that sort of level of sus- sustained success over the next 10 years, I think she would be very happy. And yeah, so there was something sort of quite interesting just from a narrative point of view about how you know it was Petra Kvitova who was the one to sort of stop her and and just sort of halt this conversation that everyone's been having us included you know about the new big three and just a sort of reminder that you know she's she's a great player as well and has seen off you know a few generations now and and is still going strong so yeah there was there was something quite nice about that. Mm. In, inevitably we, we we talk at this sort of point about whether it means anything um, and I'm going to ask you a very oh, simple no. question <laughs> one after another uh, to try to put some context to that and ask you whether you think this win will be the highlight of Petra Kvitova's year or not I think it will I I think the chances are yes mm. it will be I think that she genuinely still has the tennis in her to beat pretty much anybody on her day. I think the matchup against Rabakina helped uh, yesterday, but I do think that tennis was pretty much peak Petra Kvitova, to be honest, the tennis that she's been playing this week. Um, And if she happened to have one of these weeks at Wimbledon you know, for two weeks, then she could win it. But it does seem a bit random to me when those weeks happen. And frankly, as Matt pointed out, it seems random to her as well. It's not like she came to (laughs) Miami and thought, yeah, okay, this is this, I'm feeling it. She said, you know, started with one win and it built from there and and then she started feeling it. But it seems completely unpredictable when she's going to wax and wane. And she's completely accepting of that in her career. She says, look, I'm, I'm 33. I'm still working hard, but I'm the sort of person that now at this stage of my career, sometimes I'm not going to be feeling it at all. 
and I'm going to have bad results and the lows will probably be lower than they were before. But she knows that she still has weeks like this in her. They might be slightly fewer and further between than they were before. So I think it is possible that lightning strikes and she happens to hit this at Wimbledon, but feels a little bit out of her control, (laughs) Uh, the timing of it. So I'm not doesn't feel reliable to me. I certainly wouldn't yeah. wouldn't bet on it. It's possible, though. The, she deserves to be in the conversation because she has the capability to beat people. Yeah, there, there are. Um, I, I think there are a lot of people that will not want her facing them at any at any point. In fact, I think everybody uh, I, I, doesn't want to come up against her. If you're a top player with ambitions of going far uh, all the way at a Grand Slam tournament, you don't want to be playing against her. I, I mean, I personally love the fact that she is still so into it after all these years. She's got all the money she needs. She's, you know, she must just love the game and, and still be very ambitious, still think she can achieve things, but just love being out there because it, it can be a grind, te- tennis, the, the circuit and all that sort of thing. Uh, you spent a bit of time uh, interviewing her, Catherine. She, she's, she's very unaffected, isn't she, in terms of how she comes across. She's, ne- she's never difficult. She never gives it, you know, she's, she seems very easy to deal with. Oh, she's an absolute delight. Absolute delight. Always has been, same as she's always been. Takes things exactly as they come. Um, Doesn't take anything for granted. I'm always wary of the expression, doesn't take things or herself too seriously. But I think she takes the right thing seriously, you know. Um, And she's just, I think she's fantastic at managing energy. You know, she quite famously... She hates humid conditions. She does not cope well with humidity. Mm. And let me tell you, folks, <laughs> the, the, weather in, <laughs> the weather in Miami these past few days, uh, and from what I can gather, consistently between the months of uh, February and November, um, has been time. stifling absolutely suffocating and I know people feel it differently Um, people experience those conditions differently I saw someone today in jeans and a hoodie and I almost (laughs) vomited on the spot just at the sight of it it made me feel genuinely queasy I saw someone wearing double denim like extraordinary Um, but Petra Gavitova does feel it you know, we've seen her have breathing problems in humidity. We've seen her struggle at altitude in, in Madrid before. You know, she she's sensitive to these things. And, and yet she's so self-aware and so, so... So aware of her own game and herself as a tennis player that she just manages all, all that stuff. You know, there are a couple of... Rebecca in a service games yesterday that she, you know, she she limited her input into them because she just got that experience, match management, energy management. I know these aren't sexy things, but she knows who she is, both in the macro and the micro sense. She can't she can't give it all week in week out, but she she manages to to have these peaks. And the peaks are absolutely enough for her. She seems to be, mm. she seems to have a good life balance. She seems one of the more genuinely happy 
tennis players out there to me. That's great. Matt, talking of um, players that seem to have a healthy healthy life out there and a sort of healthy disposition and seem to be enjoying tour life, it struck me watching the doubles final today that we had. Before we come on to the men's singles, I just wanted to touch on the victory for Coco Goff and Jessica Bagula today over Leila Fernandez and Taylor Townsend, seven six six two. Really good first set. You know, a new pairing in Fernandez and Townsend. I think you could probably see that that in the end results between these two pairs against a pair that have been playing together for, for a long time now. But all four of them just seemed really happy to be playing doubles and and had, and have worked out that regardless of what this might mean for their singles, and in, certainly in three of the four cases there, you've got players with serious aspirations of going deep in major tournaments in singles. And Pagula was talking about the logistics that she was putting tournament director James Blake through in order to get on the schedule in all of these matches, singles and doubles. But you could just tell in their conversation afterwards, they would... They would not be as happy out there as tennis players if they were not playing doubles. And 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 that's important to tour life, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think Goff and Pagula is certainly the the example that I know better out of the two pairings. And they have helped each other so much, I think, over the over the last year or so that they've been a a regular team and, you know, Goff said this week she lost early in in singles but you know she had the doubles to stick around for and you know she had all her family there as well and it was just it was just good vibes I think for her and for Pagula she talks about doubles as actually helping her get over losses in in singles rather than you know think about the loss she's back out there playing doubles and you know they I think the age difference between them probably helps as well. They sort of bring different things to that pairing. Uh, it's it's fantastic. And um, they finally said that they'll be able to celebrate a victory together because normally they're, they're straight off to the next tournament that night. But for some reason, Jessica Pagula is taking on a 600-mile drive tomorrow instead yeah, of flying. Let's talk about this. Because I can't stop thinking about it. Look, I love a road trip. I hope they've got Recent a good playlist. history tells me a road trip can be a good time. Good playlist, good company, no unpleasant highway patrol men blocking off your, your exit and costing you an hour and a half on Route 66. All of those things you know, fall into place for you. A four a four-ish hour road trip can be a good time, <laughs> is what I would say. A multi-millionaire driving thirteen hours <laughs> uh the day after completing a tennis tournament at which she says she spent more time on site than any other player this week because of the amount of time because playing singles doubles doing well in both rain delays suffering so badly (laughs) from the rain delays you know there was one day where I was running back and forth you know having to set up in our wet weather position every time it rained and every time I ran back and forth from our uh, commentary booth I would see Jessica Bagula just hanging out in a corridor looking vaguely bored 
uh, in tennis kit. Um, she was there, th- you know, it was a gruelling, tiring week. Now, she said her husband's coming, she's bringing her two dogs. Lovely. If that were a four-hour trip, I'd say, wow, what a good time. Hope you've got a good playlist. 13 hours. <laughs> What's she doing? Maybe she, maybe it's an eco thing. Well, she said In she always case, does it, didn't she? She yeah, said she always madness. drives to Charleston. Not not picking Jessica Bagula <laughs> next week in the newsletter, put it that way. <laughs> I I know how one feels after a after an American road trip. <laughs> how do you go in the predictions this week, Catherine? I think I had Alcaraz and Sabalenka, didn't I? So not not great. No. Okay, let's get on to uh, the <laughs> men's event <laughs> and talk about Mr. Alcaraz, uh, who was defeated in the semi-finals by Yannick Sinner. And I kind of feel like we should start there because Sinner in the final maybe has been impacted by Sinner in the semi-finals, Matt. Uh, we, we we don't know that uh, as such. I mean, he, he was clearly physically feeling issues today um unwell he said over the last couple of days whether that was brought on by the three hours plus of the most extraordinary electric hitting and side to side movement as good as we've ever seen i would say in terms of just physicality and and shot making um in terms of furious uh, back and forth it was, well, it was a bit like the the five and a half hour epic we watched at the u.s open which cost me my voice for about three <laughs> days because i was shouting so much um he he was he was extraordinary in that semi-final against alcaraz what what was your assessment as you were going along in there how how surprised were you i mean obviously it's it's a matchup we've seen a number of times but Alcaraz, despite kind of being second best for much of that first set, won it, but he didn't win the match. Gosh, yeah, I I loved this match. Uh, in particular, the first two sets. I think the third set was actually impacted by Alcaraz really struggling physically. He he, he started cramping in in that third set, but but the first two sets were absolutely electric. I think it's probably quite good for the rivalry that that Sinner ended up winning it you know if if he'd lost that would have been three defeats in a row on on hard court to to Alcaraz we would have started to think Alcaraz has really got his number but you know it's absolutely neck and neck now and Sinner's beaten him on all three surfaces it's just it's fascinating right now that that rivalry is in such a good place and it was quite interesting watching it because I did realize early on that Alcaraz is a bit on edge, I think, when he plays Sinner. Sinner is capable of hurting him in ways that other players are not. And it it took a while, as it did in Indian Wells, for Alcaraz to loosen up and really get going. You know, Sinner Sinner missed the smash that would have given him a very good chance to be 5-1 up in that first set. And as it was, Alcaraz worked his way back in and took that first set. There was the most extraordinary point at one stage in that first set and I've watched it so many times and there's absolutely no way I can do it justice by describing it so I would just urge anyone who for some reason has been living under a rock and and hasn't seen it to go and look at it because it is just the most incredible exhibition of shot making and movement 
from both players at the same time. And I can't remember a point generating such buzz and excitement sort of online just instantly. You know, everyone was just sort of in awe at what at what these two were doing. And I think it's really important for a, a burgeoning rivalry to have moments like that. You know, people will remember their US Open match. People will remember that point from from their Miami match. And I just think it's really important to have a imprint in your mind of what matches look like between players. And that point will absolutely do that. You know, we'll be, we'll be replaying that and watching that for years. It was just astonishing. Um, so all that being said, you know, I, this is Sinner playing brilliantly. Sinner in a matchup, which I think, I don't know whether it favours him, but he's certainly perfectly comfortable in it. I think he actually sort of has the edge in the in the ground stroke rallies. And yet Alcaraz was very close to winning that in straight sets. You know, he had a break point in, in the second set that would have left him serving for the match. And I think that also shows just how good Alcaraz is. You know, Sinner was sort of just pushing him to the limit and he nearly came up with the goods to win a match in straight sets that he sort of had kind of had no business winning in straight sets. So... I sort of came out of it with real positives for both players, really. I mean, how could you not? Uh, there's just the question mark over Alcaraz's physical fitness, and and I don't I don't question the shape that he's in. He's in unbelievable shape. It's just, you know, the two losses he's had this year have both been related to fitness or injury and you know we've seen him miss months out from the tour it is it is becoming a little bit of a concern the way it's affecting him Uh, and I just I just hope it doesn't hold him back because the upper limits of what he's capable of are so scarily ridiculously incredible and I want to see them and uh you know I think I think we've we've had a great taste of it over the last few weeks and and now we get to see him on the clay as well which I'm extremely excited about um yeah it was it was a great great match and occasion which which really lived up to its billing I think Mm. just on the point as you referenced it uh Matt uh, Jessica Bagula called it insanity on Twitter uh I think uh, Bianca Andresco called it alien tennis. Um, and uh, James Blake actually tweeted that it was the best point he'd ever seen courtside live. I mean, that's that's quite a lofty statement. And, and just to add my own two pennies on, on the subject, I think what makes a truly great point and rally like that is when two prodigiously talented players both play all of their sort of famous shots in the one rally and repel them and we saw everything that these two players have got in a single rally we saw the the basic back and forth we saw the the Alcaraz drop shot we saw the incredible movement of of Sinner to get to it we saw them back on the baseline we saw um, the backhand down the line from Sinner which completely opened the court and put Alcaraz into the splits in order to get it back and basically on his backside sliding to to get to it he then turns the tables and puts it on the baseline he then attacks and then you've got that incredible flicked backhand passing shot cross court from Sinner to win the rally so balanced so perfectly played and uh 
Yeah, and and even a diving Alcaraz couldn't couldn't get to the ball. That that is as good as it gets, really. I think in terms of a back and forth, and and I thought it was it was really really special. Um, Catherine, as the as the one of the three of us that has done the sunshine double, um, you've got a sense of of kind of how grueling it is without playing the tennis. I mean, it's it's great, isn't it? But it's it's tiring. Have we seen a bit of that here? Because on Thursday or Friday when Matt and I were talking, the idea that Alcraz and Rebecca, neither of them would win this tournament, would have seemed very unlikely to us. And yet neither of them have. Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> I think it is very grueling. I think that, I mean, so, some of my pundits on Prime described it as a disadvantage to doing well in one doing well in the other, you know, doing well in Indian Wells, certainly at the start of, of Miami, but it being a disadvantage because I think the difference in conditions between the two events has been exacerbated since the move of Miami to Miami Gardens, the Hard Rock Stadium. Um, I believe those, those courts are particularly quick, um, certainly a lot quicker than... Indian Wells see Daniel Medvedev's comments uh, that I'm sure I'm sure we'll come on to. He's still not over the Indian Wells court situation. He's still um, trolling. And just you hear about the humidity, um, but <laughs> until you're in it and trying to function in it, and again, affects different people differently, but. It's so blooming different to Indian Wells. You know, the the headline temperature can be identical and it could not feel more different. That dry heat in Indian Wells, which I find far more pleasant, but, you know, that does make you, makes your lips very chapped, for example, and can make your skin very dry. I know, first world problems. Um, It just couldn't be more different here. You just feel constantly sticky. I hate feeling sticky. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, enough of my whinging. And, you know, extending these events to, to two weeks each, I know that they kind of start and end at the same time as they always did, I think. You know, day one of Indian Wells was always uh, four weeks before the end of Miami, I think, David. But the fact that those events have been extended... Um, I, I don't know that, and that there is, you know, they overlap, don't they? Miami feels like it's already happening by the time Indian Wells ends. It does just sort of enhance the the relentlessness of it all. I remain not a fan of two week um, events at this level. I I see what they're trying to do, and I accept that there are some positives to it, but. I don't think it's the right thing to be doing. Um, I think possibly at the odd one, like Indian Wells does it as well as as anywhere, I think. But as a standard, as a standard format, these events being over two weeks doesn't work for me. I think it's extending the wrong part of the event because the the, the nuts and bolts of the event, the the format and the rhythm of it is still the same. It just has this even bittier, more stretched sparse feeling beginning you're like okay when when does it get going when 
when do I need to, I think for a viewer, when do I need to start paying attention? Um, but look, the Miami Open will tell you record people through the gates, record revenues. That's all good news for them and for tennis. So I realize there's two sides from it, but from my narrow perspective, not a fan. Yeah, I agree. I like I like the idea of getting an extra weekend of, of tennis in, mm. but there's three or four days of the tournament before the opening weekend. And yeah, as you said, the, just the rhythm of it just feels wrong. And then... And the last few days end up end up dragging. I think they just aren't that many matches packed in, you know, packed into a day. And I think I think the slams can get away with that because they're the slams and everything matters so much. But at these events, I think they're all about buzz and and they lose buzz in the second week. Um, just more generally on the uh, on the idea of how how grueling the double is. I did think it was interesting that. A lot of the players who did well at Indian Wells also did well in Miami. Rabakina, Sinner, Medvedev, Alcaraz, Kostea, Sabalenka, you know, quarterfinal in Miami is not a bad result. Like, I think we saw some tailing off from those players at the end, you know, where from some of them anyway, where it was physically demanding. But I did, I did think it was interesting that, you know, albeit totally different conditions, the players in form were still the players in form and they and they did manage to sort of carry it over to the mm. to the second week and I just think talking about it being physically demanding it just makes what Daniil Medvedev has done not just these two weeks but the last seven weeks just all the more remarkable I mean I know that no matter how <laughs> how much of a mess he may look he's still got res- reserves and energy in the tank and he can just keep going but all the more so today, you know. He he said he was feeling it physically, but he looked down the other end and he realised that Sinner was even worse and, and that made him feel better. And he's just so physically strong. He he has had no let-ups in five consecutive tournaments. He's reached the final of all of them. It's it's really underrated, I think, what he's, what he's done over these last few weeks. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Uh, there's a resilience to him where, yes, he might look dishevelled, but... It's so rarely, <laughs> it's so it's so rarely kind of makes a difference to his performance. I think maybe you saw it in Indian Wells when he was just irritable, um, and and he was he was kind of dicing with trouble there when when things were going off the rails. I, I do think maybe jet lag was part of that as well. I think he was just he just was in a bad frame of mind for a few days, and he was taking it out on the court, but. I don't know. I, I think it is an astonishing achievement what he's done. I mean, the, the commentator on the world feed, Kevin Skinner, called him the road warrior because he's just done this so many weeks in a row and and he's crossed all these time zones and travelled all these miles and played 24 matches, I think, in 48 days. It's, it is it is amazing what he's achieved. And, and today, Catherine, he made it 6-0 and against uh, Yannick Sinner. Does this one count to that rivalry in quite the same way, given that Sinner looked underpowered? I mean, all your pundits were picking Sinner to win this match. Do you think, based on what you saw against Alcraz, do you think had Sinner not been struggling that that he'd have won that match? Or or did it look to you like, actually, we're again guilty of underestimating Medvedev here? Both. I think, it, without question, Sinner's physicality was 
a factor in that match or lack thereof. And it was so obvious, so visible and palpable that that was just not only a blow for him, but a huge gift to to Medvedev. You know, I my vantage point was pretty high up and I could see Sinner, you know, huffing and wheezing after he had a really long first service game, didn't he? Really long game to take it to one all. And after that, I suddenly I saw him, you know, trudging towards his towel, and I thought, oh my goodness, this this isn't right at all. Um, so if I clocked it from up there, Daniel Medvedev was definitely clocking it. Um, but I also think there was the same evidence today of why that matchup isn't very good for, for Yannick Sinner. He doesn't like generating his own pace. He's brilliant with pace coming at him. See Carlos Alcaraz. But he didn't love having to generate his own pace. He wasn't able to exploit Medvedev's court position well at all. So that's surely, the, that's the biggest thing. Surely that's... Medvedev must just be thinking... Why aren't people? Why is nobody drop shotting me? Did people not see? I mean, Sinner doesn't have it. No, but why? I don't know. Like, why aren't people developing? I, yeah, he did try and he wasn't very good at it, and that was a shame. But he's a decent volleyer, I think, Sinner, and that's definitely something that Darren Cahill has brought on um, in his game. And I don't think he did a good enough job of getting up up to the net today um, could have been to do with there not being enough in his legs could have been to do with the fact that it was a bad serving day um, and then that could have been to do with the fact that his his legs were obviously heavy so look there's no it's not a it's not a binary thing you can't say this was caused by that and this was caused by that it was all one big amorphous blob of bad situation for Yannick Sinner but I certainly didn't see any evidence that Yannick Sinner's figured out the Daniel Medvedev problem today. And it is a problem. 6-0, it's a problem. Mm. There must have been a part of Medvedev who would have relished the chance to play Alcaraz again. You know, I think the conditions in Miami would have <clears throat> suited him more than in Indian Wells against Alcaraz. But at the same time, he must have been absolutely licking his lips when he knew he had Yannick Sinner because it is such a good matchup. When I think of players that play well against Medvedev, I think a big thing that you need is variety. You have to be able to disrupt Medvedev and take him out of his comfort zone of just trading behind the baseline, you know. We've seen his record against Felix Auger-Aliassime. He absolutely dominates him. He doesn't have variety. He absolutely dominates Andrei Rublev. And he absolutely dominates Yannick Sinner. These are all great strikers of a tennis ball. But what are they actually doing to disrupt Medvedev? Pretty much nothing. Whereas, you know, Federer always had a great record against Medvedev. We've seen what Alcaraz did to him in Indian Wells. Remember the Australian Open final when the Dahl's variety turned that match around. You know, he was using the short slice. He was playing with angles. He was coming in. He was just doing everything he possibly could to to disrupt Medvedev. And Sinner just plays straight into Medvedev's hands with that with that you know great 
perfectly timed ground strokes, but Medvedev's just ready for them. And he, he is just ready to consistently put the ball back to a length and sort of wait for Sinner to really pull the trigger and miss or go for a drop shot. But it wasn't a drop shot that was a tactic. It was a bit of a bailout drop shot. And yeah, Medvedev was just so comfortable. And a piece of analysis that I think it was Martina Navratilova picked up on on, on your coverage, Catherine, was that Sinner also doesn't have the slice serve wide on, on the deuce side mm. to sort of take Medvedev out of the court, which is something we saw Alcaraz do just brilliantly in Indian Wells. Sinner can't do that. So the rally just just starts up and down and, and Medvedev's extremely comfortable. You know, I think for Sinner to win that, he would have to be at his absolute best. Everything would be perfect and and Medvedev would would have to be slightly off his game, you know, the sort of Medvedev we saw last year, maybe. Uh, but, you know, with Sinner feeling the way he was and Medvedev comfortable in that matchup, it, it just felt early on to me like Medvedev was going to win this final pretty pretty comfortably. Mm. Yeah, well, I think it's a perfect example, those three players of styles mm. and how Yannick Sinner's style matches up quite well against Carlos Alcaraz. Alcaraz's drop shot power combo disrupts Daniel Medvedev and Yannick Sinner can't can't get anywhere against Daniel Medvedev. It's it's fascinating. He did uh, Medvedev works. thanked Alcaraz in his speech <laughs> during the trophy presentation for depleting Yannick Sinner's physical resources which was um, a nice moment. And then the the mic drop moment in what was a, by Medvedev standards, pretty uneventful straight as an arrow speech was to to continue to drag the Indian Wells court. He was like, just, just finally like to say how great it is to play on a proper hard court. <laughs> Although I, t- I did think he was somewhat one-upped by Yannick Sinner saying, um, you know, uh, now you'll move on to the clay. Let's see how you'll do there. <laughs> that made me laugh out loud. <laughs> well, well, I said to him, he came over Medvedev and, and spoke to us live on uh, on Prime. And I said, OK, that's that's 19 titles in 19 different cities. Now, what next? And he he said, oh, maybe one on clay. <laughs> But also well, did not look too convinced by that. No. He said, oh, right. I would like, it's great, but I would like to defend a title one day. Maybe I should aim for that. <laughs> we'll see. It's going to be fascinating to see him on clay, that's for sure. Uh, the, the doubles finals win by Eduard Roger Vassalan and Santiago Gonzalez, beating Nicola Mahou and uh, Austin Krychek. Mahou seems to have played with about a dozen partners so far this year. Um, seven, six, seven, five. He's played with eight, David. Eight. Okay. And I, I am prone to the odd exaggeration. And, and none of them are Edouard Roger Vasselin, who has been a regular partner for him? Is that None of them are Edouard Roger right. Vasselin, correct. Yeah. Mm. Is, is yeah. that a bit agro-tastic? Or? No, Not at all. I, I was hoping no. so as well, but I think it's awfully <laughs> lovely. Okay. Yeah. All right then. Yeah, you well, don't well want me to, to name the eight? No. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I right. actually do. Uh, oh, hurry up then. We haven't got long. <laughs> uh, oh no! What have I done here? Tim Tim Puets, Joe Salisbury, um, whoever he was playing with yesterday, Austin Krychek. That's the one. 
uh, Arthur Rinderknech, Fabrice Martin, Grigor Dimitrov. <laughs> now, uh, there's a bloke called something Vach Vanugan. Okay. We'll give you that. Seven. I think that's a total butchering of his name, but there you go. And oh my goodness, I can't remember the eight. Keep talking and I'll be totally distracted while I try and okay. think of well, it. Pio Gebert is injured, folks, so he's not number eight. That much I can tell you. Um, I mean, he's quite clearly irreplaceable, Pierre Gebert. Mm. Mm. Yeah. He got to the final, though. You know, did all right. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops, if we're stopping to get gas. You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If Catherine can think of who it is at the end of the show, she'll let you know. Um, but uh, we've got something uh, rather more um, important to to talk about. And we did reference it. We did report the news uh, in the last show. It was too late for Matt and I's conversation. Um, but I, I put that covering note on to reference the fact that uh, Wimbledon has lifted its ban on Russian and Belarusian players at the 2023 Wimbledon Championships. And uh, obviously last year it was played without Russian and Belarusian players and without ranking points because that was the tour's response to that ban. They didn't agree with it at all. They stood firm. They threatened um, British tennis, basically, with removing sanctions for tournaments such as Queen's and Eastbourne. Uh, That's what... uh, the Lawn Tennis Association let us know that, that that's what they were facing if they continued to uh, to have this stance um, in light of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the subsequent ban on Russian and Belarusian players, that that's, that's what they would be facing. Catherine, um, it's, it's happened a few days ago, this decision. Um, surprised at all? Um, do, do, you, do you have any change in your view i mean i know we it was hardly a hard line view that we had at the time because it's it's so nuanced yeah not at all surprised i mean we've sort of heard heard that this has been on the cards for for quite a while now behind the scenes i I think it was just a question of when it was announced or when it was when it was finalized um i remain pretty much in the same position um, I was sort of fifty-one forty-nine last year in favour 
of the ban. Uh, maybe I've swung fifteen one forty nine in the other direction now. I don't know. Simply because it's fairly evident that it's not effective. Um, although how you measure that, I don't know. But um, and I, I perhaps thought that Wimbledon taking the stance they did would lead to a more united stance in that direction within tennis. Um, and that's a rather different kettle of fish to Wimbledon just doing something completely at odds with the rest of tennis. Um, I just, mostly I remain committed to my view that almost every opinion I hear about this is just largely irrelevant because it's such, I mean, it's it's a philosophical question of whether you think it, citizens can can and should be held responsible for the actions of their state. Um, and I don't have the answer to that. I, you know, at the time of the ban last year, when this was all fresh, I, I read some, I read some papers um, about that subject, a bit of a refresher of my first time ever. My philosophy degree has come in, in handy as my, in my career as a tennis broadcaster. So that was, you know, something, um, and I I don't have the answer to that, but I but I also know that most people that weigh in this weigh in on this debate don't really f- factor that it you know what tennis players think about it is mostly neither here nor there to me it's so above all of our pay grades and so um, fundamental and knotty and nuanced um, that it. It it just it worries me when anybody has a just a really black and white opinion about this because I I just don't see how that can be possible, honestly. Yeah, that that's probably where I come down more than anything and have all all the way along is the only f- view I feel really confident about is that you cannot have a truly confident view about this um, because. There is no clear-cut right and wrong here. There is absolutely uh, trying to aid the the cause of of uh, or make sure that you're not aiding the cause of of Russia and Belarus in this situation is is paramount. But at the same time, can you? Is it fair? Is it right to to withdraw players who play under that flag? Um, from a tournament when they have absolutely nothing to do with the war in the first place, it's it is it's impossible. It's impossible. Um, and it was in, interesting to to monitor some of the coverage um, that came off the back of uh, of the decision. Uh, Mike Dixon wrote in the uh, in the mail. He said the talk yesterday was all of solutions having been found among the various parties, and that was what was written between them all. That they they were trying to find a way out of this situation. Um, but he said, in plain language, let us be clear what this is, a climb down. And that's that's what it ended up having to be. Because I think you're right, Catherine, I think that they were really shocked at how little support there was in the corridors of power elsewhere for the decision that they'd taken. And, uh, and nobody was on their shoulder, really. Um, one one person who, who was, actually was Petra Kvitova, and she gave quite an interesting press conference a couple of days ago saying that she thinks Wimbledon got it right last year. And, um, you know, when 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 
you take your view on it, she ultimately thinks that uh, the players from Ukraine um, and the Ukraine effort generally is is of more significance. Um, but uh, you know that I've I've seen out on social media the the reaction that that got, and it's it's ugly. It's it's horrible what she's what the, the the opinions being thrown around about her because of the the view that she took. It's so so difficult to know what the best thing to do is. Um, but we know for sure that um, Russian and Belarusian players are going to be playing at Wimbledon this year, which uh, will change the landscape certainly from last year, and it will mean that ranking points are reinstated. And I suppose one um, offshoot to that, Matt, is long-term the rankings become relevant again. Yes, yes. I mean, that that feels so um, sort of small time in, in this big, big sort of conversation that we're having. But but yes, um, certainly after after Wimbledon this year, the rankings will, um, you know, be back in their traditional 52-week cycle with with everything counting. I guess the only thing I would I would say on this is, you know, I completely agree. I think the sort of major motivation behind this, to use those words, climb down is that feeling of isolation that Wimbledon had within tennis and not being supported by the other slams, ranking points being taken away, the British grass court season in danger. I think I think these were these were tennis reasons why this decision has been made. What I would say is that I do think this now creates a scenario where tennis as a whole has decided that Russians and Belarusians can play now. Like, that is the decision now. What I think needs to happen maybe next is, with that being tennis's line in the sand, it still needs to think about how best to look after the Ukrainian players on the tour. Because I do think that that topic has start, has started to come up again. You know, we saw quite a lot of discontent from Ukrainian players behind the scenes. I think especially during Indian Wells, there was there was an incident of Potapova coming onto court in a in a Spartak Moscow shirt and one or two rumblings behind the scenes that it's not been particularly comfortable for a lot of Ukrainian players. So if if tennis has decided that Russians and Belarusians can play, which it seems to have done, I do still think there are maybe some steps that the tours need to take to just improve the situation as best as they possibly can for the Ukrainian players. I think a lot of the focus has been on what to do about Russians and Belarusians. And I think it's probably important now that that focus is actually switched to how best can we look after the Ukrainians. And certainly Igor Svantec has has led the way on on, on the WTA tour, you know, constantly talking about that in her press conferences and I'm sure that the tours are doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes but there was a there was a sense that maybe not enough was being done and there were there was a bit of friction I think building again after a year and uh, maybe this is now an opportunity to to just look at that well said um well that's that's it for this week's tennis uh, we have a lot coming up over the next week clay 
is back in our lives. I know Clay took place in South America um, over the last uh, six weeks or so, but this is where it sort of traditionally feels like the start of the clay court season happens. Um, and they've got the green clay of Charleston that we were talking about earlier with Jessica Pagula, Ange Jabeur, uh, Dara Kasatkina, uh, Belinda Bencic uh, as the top four seeds. Alina Svetolina is making a comeback. And she's got a lovely friendly welcome against Yulia Putintseva to look forward to in round one. <laughs> welcome back to tennis. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's a cracking field there. Victoria Azarenka, Madison Keys, Sloane Stevens, Sophia Kenin, Paola Bedosa, uh, Leda Fernandez and Daniel Collins. So really great field in Charleston. Uh, in Bogota, there is Elisa Mertens and Tatiana Maria as the top two seeds. Uh, the Houston event in on the ATP side, has Francis Tiafo and Tommy Paul as top two seeds. Estoril, which is a lovely place in Portugal. Casper Rude, who very much needs a good week, is the uh, top seed there, with Hubert Hercats just behind him. Uh, Alejandro Davidovich-Vikina also there, as is Dominic Team And Ben Shelton, excellent. Ben Shelton in Estoril, I like that idea. Uh, and in Marrakesh, there's Lorenzo Mazzetti. And if anybody needs a win, it's him. Um, and Dan Evans, he's the uh, second seed on the clay in Marrakesh. So that's all to come over the next week. Catherine and Matt will be together to bring you the very best of that and to look ahead to Monte Carlo in a week's time. I'm going on holiday, so I'm not going to be here next week. (laughs) I was cheering you going on holiday, not you not being here, just so so that was clear. Good save, Matt. (laughs) Uh, Actually, and on on the subject of going on a nice trip, uh, we have our Roland Garros ticket promotion to tell you about just a few days left for this on steve fergal's international tennis tours tennis podcast listeners can get 15 percent off tickets to roland garros and hospitality pocket and hospitality packages from steve fergal's international tennis tours just go to tours tennis.com forward slash podcast that's tours the number four tennis.com forward slash podcast click the banner for the roland garros promotion and enter the special discount code for tennis podcast listeners which is 15 love one five l-o-v-e right Catherine, do you want to hear me have a go at the disclaimer <laughs> i sure do here we go then. 15 Love coupon code is only valid on purchases for eligible 2023 Roland Garros ticket packages on www.tours4tennis.com. Made between 9 p.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, the March the 16th, 2023, through 11:59 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday, April 9th, 2023. 15 Love code is limited to one use per customer. Not valid on previous purchases and not usable with any other offer or discount your total savings will be revealed when you head to toursfortennis.com add an eligible package to your cart and enter 15 love at checkout not valid on hotel packages or other events offered by steve fergal's international tennis tours or any of its subsidiaries for questions please email info at toursfortennis.com Catherine's better at that isn't she anyway i was just going to say that was annoyingly good <laughs> <laughs> I had a go. Uh, let's have a go at the mascot, who is amazing, Ferdinand, owned by Carol Corley. Have you seen a picture of Ferdinand? Look, hang, bear with You've me. You've got to look at Ferdinand's eyes, Catherine. Oh, my word. And he's got a little, a little sort of bone collar, 
little blue hang on, hang on. Bone Keep talking, David. Dangling I'm... from his leather collar at a few weeks old, Ferdy was thrown in a garbage can outside an animal shelter with three Can't litter me. mates, and we adopted him. Carol says, "We think he's mostly dachshund, perhaps with a smattering of beagle." Ferdy loves his food, his people, his chewini sister Daisy. I don't know what that is. Uh, sleeping. Uh, his disemboweled polar bear, tennis oh, balls, yes, shredding familiar. dog beds, chasing squirrels, and having his ears scratched. Ferdinand, you are a beauty. It's it's logged me out of notion, David. Just if you could just keep <laughs> describing Ferdinand for thirty more seconds. Uh, okay. I've, I've just hit login. Um, I've run no, out. Just, I'm I've scrolling. Run out of I'm scrolling. I'm scrolling. Any thoughts, Matt? I'm going to turn my laptop screen round so Catherine can see. Oh it. my <laughs> goodness, he's gorgeous. Oh no, no need. Great. Oh, yes, he re- he's definitely lots of dachshund, but a bit bigger than a dachshund, maybe. Bit of beagle. Okay. Is that what they say? Yeah, yes. smattering of beagle. That's right. Good diagnosis, I would say. Chewini must be a chihuahua and a. Eeny. Dunno. Okay. Dunno. Definitely some Chihuahua. Anyway, Ferdinand anyway. is lovely. Do we think named after Franz Ferdinand, either the original person whose assassination started World War One or the band? Or Rio Ferdinand? Or Les. Or none of the above. But Or Les. <laughs> Big okay. likely to be Les. We've still got more, <laughs> we've got more names to come on to, folks. Still got shout-outs yet. Uh, but anyway, you'll get a picture of Ferdinand in your newsletter, which will be out this week. Um, we've also got our own mascots. I've got Maisie. We fell at the final hurdle, Maisie. We had Yannick Sinner and he let us down. Catherine's got Xenia. Uh, Matt's got Darwin. And Matt's uh, doing a little sort of celebratory dance at the moment through his Zoom, I think, under the table there. We needed that, Darwin. We had we'd fallen <laughs> into last place, but it turns out that uh, making a prediction while drinking in Vegas comes off. So, oh, take me back. I, I also made mine while drinking in Vegas, mm-hmm. but anyway. Yeah, so True. not not foolproof. Not exact science. Um, Billie Jean is sponsored by Billie Jean King and Alana Kloss. Our top folks and executive producers are Jamie, Hannah and Drew. Thank you to you all. And we have shout-outs, Matt. We do. We have Stephen Wright, who we met uh, at Indian Wells. Hey, all right, Stephen. Stephen is from Toronto. In fact, he says, my family actually lives just north of Toronto, or Toronto, as I now know it should be in the York region, where Shapovalov, Andrescu and Raonich all lived and grew up. Stephen's daughter, Emma, attended the same high school as Shapovalov, which still bears photos of his tennis exploits. That's good intel. Lots of feet off the ground, Mm. post-backhand, you know, looking like an eagle-type shots. Yeah. Good stuff, Stephen. Enjoyed the backstory. Who else we got, mm, Matt? Love that. Hello, Stephen. We've got Alex Rylance, who is from Bracknell in Berkshire. Oh, hello, Bracknell in Berkshire. Right, Alex. Very, very near where I grew up, very near where my parents still are. 
and the home of the ice rink that I frequented almost oh. daily throughout my childhood. Bracknell oh, Ice Rink. I didn't know that. There you go. <laughs> yeah, uh, home, and Alex, home of the Bracknell Bees. Alex like Alex Antonich, an Austrian player from the 90s. There must uh, be less obscure Alex's. I'm speaks Alex de Manor. Yeah. I just I just went with what what came to mind. <laughs> Dolgopolov. Oh, okay. You, you you're flying now. Um, Alexander Pop. Remember a German player <laughs> oh, wow. who played for Great Britain a while back? Long time ago, before you were born, Matt. Uh, anyway, Alex, thanks very much. <laughs> have we got anybody else, Matt? We, better go to we have got Ian Nishimura, who is in Honolulu, in Hawaii. Right, Ian. And wow, I don't think we've ever had a listener from Hawaii before. Ian says, in 2020, one of the Davis Cup qualifiers was being held in Honolulu. Right before everything shut down because of the pandemic, I got to watch the Bryan brothers' official last tennis match before they retired. I also got a picture with them. Honestly, one of the best days of my life. Oh, how lovely. That's, that's a great little story. Uh... And, uh, yeah, Hawaii, I think, maybe needs to be one of your road trips of the future. What you do you think? Drive, you can't drive to Hawaii, <laughs> David. Can the way I do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, air trips. <laughs> boat trips. <laughs> Followed by road trips. What, what was his name again? <laughs> Ian. <laughs> Ian. Uh, Ian, Ian Hewitt, the um, chairman of the All England Club. Oh, very good, mm. Catherine. Yes, absolutely right. Excellent. Ian, thanks so much for being a friend of the Tennis Podcast and to all of you who are, because you are the people that keep the show on the road and, and enables to, us to do this uh, for so much of our working lives, um, especially me and Matt full-time. Uh, and actually, Catherine's basically full-time now as well. Uh, so anyway, thank you so much to all of you. Uh, if you'd like a shout-out on this show, they won't all be as bad as the one I've just read out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, won't, I won't butcher them all. Uh, you can get one, and uh, you can also introduce the show. Um, but, yeah, we will be back with another show in a week's time. I won't be on it, uh, but in a couple of weeks' time I will be. Uh, and Matt and Catherine will do a sterling job in my absence. Uh, but thanks for listening to this one. Uh, travel safely, Catherine. Back tomorrow to the homeland. And uh, Billie Jean needs a walking or two. Um, and, yeah... I'll speak to you both very soon. Enjoy your holidays. Travel well. Thank you. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas. You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.